Thank you, Sander, for coming this morning and uh, encouraging us and charging us to be part of this tremendous mission. I know Deborah's had a heart for it as well in getting at least 100 backpacks. And if you know Sandra at all, you know, number one, she loves the Lord. Number two, she loves missions. And number three, she loves Georgia Southern football. And in that order, and number three gets pretty close to number two, but it never gets ahead of it. It's always about Jesus and sharing that love. And she's a very active member at Evergreen in our association and then leads throughout our association in these missions endeavors. And we appreciate you, appreciate what you do to draw attention to missions. I want you to turn with me again to Mark chapter 2. And I want to finish where we started last week on when critics attack. If you have been anywhere outside of a sealed cave or in the cone of silence this week, uh, you have seen great turmoil in our country over perceived and what, no matter what side of the aisle you may find yourself or where your opinions are, just vicious political slander and attacks from every corner. And it has been said over and over and over, our country has never been so divided. Uh, yeah, it has. In the late 1860s, uh, they actually killed each other. Uh, we're not to that yet. But we find in the Bible where critics were so quick to attack. And let me encourage you, when you are surveying the, the uh, situations that we find ourselves in in America, number one, uh, it, it was cute, it was worn on bracelets and on bumper stickers, but it still should resonate in our hearts when it comes to before you hit the sin button with your opinion, ask, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do in this situation? Last week we looked at where they questioned him and they were critical because they didn't worry about the fact that he had just healed this guy, but the fact that he said your sins are forgiven. Well, what right do you have to do that? Uh, I'm the son of God. Did you not see what I just did? They were very critical of him because he ate with publicans and sinners. And let me, let me encourage you something before we read the scripture. If you think for a second, you can simply be absorbed into your comfort zone and stay out of it in any way. If you're a born again believer, then the Holy Spirit resides in you seals you, you are the temple of God, and if he's there, he's going to come out because he is a jealous God. It is time to get off the sidelines. It is time to stand up and not be brash. Jesus wasn't brash. He wasn't being ugly. He was raising people up that couldn't walk. He was forgiving people's sins. He was changing people's lives that were a shell of just temporal things in this world. And so this morning as we continue looking at when critics attack, 
Let us put ourselves and interject it. It was written for that day, but it applies to us today. And, and while I'm doing it, I love being live because we've been able to encourage others with prayer requests and things like that. So I want to take just a moment before we go any further. And I forget, but I want to look in the camera and tell Aubrey Jean Brady, happy 84th birthday. <laughs> Amen. On September 30th of 1934, in a little two-room shack that we called the Little House, beside where we lived and beside my grandparents' later home, my father was born in that house. No air, no water, none of that kind of stuff. You could see through the boards in the floor and all that. Dad grew up that way, but he grew up in, uh, in a godly home. He raised us boys in a godly home, and we've been blessed with 84 years. Got to spend some time with him this weekend. So, Aubrey, Dad, happy birthday. Mark chapter 2. Last week, as we said, we looked at the fact, and don't you feel like this sometimes, no good deed goes unpunished? You try to help somebody, you try to help something, and it seems like they don't care. They don't, well, don't be surprised. They didn't care. Jesus did those things either. There will always be a critic. No matter where you turn, no matter where you go, there will always be a critic somewhere who doesn't like what color dress you wore when you took the backpacks. They won't like what kind of backpacks you took or the shampoo you put in them. They won't like it. Everybody has rights today. A coach that tries to get the most out of a child is, is criticized because they spoke too hard. And I'm not talking about cussing. There's no place for that kind of business. You can love and you can encourage. You can either be allowed a little bit, but no kid deserves to be cussed. And if you think you can motivate out of your ignorance because you can't use bigger words than four letters, then you're just ignorant. That's just, that's just a fact. Read a book. Try two syllables. Just expand your parameters. Critics are everywhere. And so, so often, most people, if, let's just say we take up exactly 100 backpacks. And unless you literally go up and hand one to a child, you will not get thanked for it. This side of glory. But God loves us and is thankful for us when we're obedient. God loves us. And listen, I have no doubt in my mind because heaven is eternal. That we'll be just walking around praising the Lord and somebody will come up and tap us on the shoulder and says, Hey, you don't know me from earth, but I want you to know that your love and your care at Eastside Baptist Church brought backpacks to our little destitute corner of the world. And somebody looked me in the eye. I was a young girl and I, I didn't have a father at home. Nobody had ever told me they loved me and somebody handed me a backpack. I had no clothes except what I had on. Somebody told me, we just want to give you this and to let you know Jesus loves you. I believe that's going to happen all through eternity. There will always be a critic. Serving is often thankless. 
And it will cost us friends, family, finances. But today, I want us, as we look at the sovereign servant, the son of God, the son of man, I want us to know a servant's motives will often be questioned. A servant's motives will often be questioned. He said in chapter 2, verse 18, And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast. And they come and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples fast not? Now let me, let me express something to you right here. Many times people believe if they can build a consensus and build a team, they can convince everyone else that they're right and right is wrong. Just because they now have a majority. Well, my whole bunch of friends says you're wrong. I'm going to tell you something. The majority, the majority of the time is not right. God says that. Jesus himself says the majority is going down the wide, broad way that leads to destruction. If you find yourself where everybody likes everything you do and everybody's just going along to get along, chances are you're going down the wrong path. And so, oh, but man, if, if the Lord's, look at that place, God must be in it. It's just growing and booming and, and great things are happening. God's got to be in it. I mean, over there at that big, huge church at Houston that had to buy a basketball arena to put everybody, they must be doing something right. Does that mean the Mormons and the Muslims are doing it right? Because they're growing exponentially. No! No, truth will be hated in this world. A servant's motives will be questioned. He said, right here, why? Why, do you, why does your disciples not fast when John's did and the Pharisees did? And all of us, we, we're so spiritual. Now remember, this is the pharisaical crowd. So I want to ask you, why did Jesus do what he did? Why did he do what he was doing? Why was he not fasting? Why was his disciples not fasting? Well, he kind of explains it. And Jesus said unto them, can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now, I want, I want you to understand something very interesting about fasting. And he uses this as the centrality of his message here that they have come. And, and at this, at least they've now gotten a little boldness to where they're literally asking. You remember before, they were talking amongst themselves and the Lord sensed their spirit and knew what they had said. Well, now they're just asking. But there's a way in asking in an accusatory tone and asking to want to hear what God's got to say. Any of you ever hear growing up, it's wrong to question God? Did you ever hear that? I heard it growing up. Don't ever question God. It's, that's wrong. That is absolutely absurd. Because listen to me, God wants us to ask if we're willing to hear what the answer is. Now this much, they didn't want to hear what the answer was. They were asking in such an accusatory tone, they were saying, you're wrong, why are you doing it? 
And they wanted to draw attention. Why are you doing It's like standing before the Judiciary Committee. What about this one? And it was no evidence. They just want to try to bash and have their own way. That's what the Pharisees were doing. And they don't care who they hurt. They don't care where they stand. Listen to me this morning. This is not about politics, except for the fact it is. And so we ought not have politics in church. Well, you know what the number one rule of politics is? It's all about who you know. Isn't that right? I got news for you. That's how you're going to get to heaven. So you better understand the politics of glory because it's all about knowing Jesus and being on the winning side. Hear me today. Why did Jesus do what he did? Let's look at fasting, if you will, for just a moment. Do you know that fasting is never directly commanded in all of the New Testament? Jesus does say with the presumption that you should. He says when you fast, not if you fast, but when you fast. But now in the Old Testament, the Old Testament did command it. You know the first place that, the, that a fast is commanded? The book of Leviticus. Look, you know that book that we all hate to read because it's the law in triplicate? He says that you must fast for the entire day before the Day of Atonement. Now what happened on the Day of Atonement? The sins were covered. The sins of the Hebrew people. They would bring in the sin offering. They'd bring in the scapegoat. And the high priest would come in if he was right and God didn't strike him dead. He would call out the sins of the nation of Israel over uh, uh, this uh, uh, lamb. They would sacrifice, sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat. And God would see it and God would cover the sin for a year. They were ordered, you must fast the day before the day of atonement. Isaiah 58 tells us there's a chosen fast of God. And he's very explicit about how that fast and what that fast consists of. And it's all about the captives being set free. Do you remember what Esther, when I talked about last week, Mordecai charged Esther? Well, you know, Esther turned around and charged her uncle. Said, okay, I'm going, but here's what I need from you. We're going to fast. I'm going to have all of my servants under me as a servant of God fast, but you need to go back and tell all of my brothers and sisters, all the Hebrew children, we must fast. And so Esther declared a fast. Samuel fasted. Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, they fasted from the king's table. We see fasting from from Jesus in the wilderness, we see Moses, we see Elijah, we see the supernatural fast there of those three guys, we see the natural fast of the day before atonement, and then we see the partial fast of these men who would not eat the dainty, uh, uh, rich foods of this world. But everywhere, hear me today, listen, nowhere in Scripture did people fast for more money? No one fasted for a better house. No one fasted for material blessings. Every, and listen, I read every single one of them. Every single scriptural res, uh, uh, 
place that the reference is to fasting. And it's, it's kind of unique because the Hebrew word for fast means uh, to afflict one's soul, to put your hand over your mouth, to be quiet and to be hungry. Hungry from what? The temporal things of the world. Why? So that we may have a higher hunger for the eternal things of God. Why did Jesus and his disciples not fast? He said, because I'm here. Deliverance is here. The, the fast before the day of atonement is finished. The day of atonement has arrived. And I've come to cleanse sin. Listen, it's always, always, always we fast for deliverance. So why do we fast now? If Jesus has already come, we fast for his coming back and ultimate deliverance. Church, I'm going to tell you, I believe we're missing out on a very large place. Sunday night has been phenomenal, experiencing God. But I'm going to tell you, you want to put a tool in your toolbox? Now, there's a lot of great tools out there, and there's a lot of specific tools. I love, I got me a set of uh, ratchet wrenches one time and they work really well and I've got a set of uh, line wrenches they have a special end that you can go over and hook on the ends of like gas lines or uh, brake lines and things and they're made so they won't strip them off they're very specific they don't work so well for other things but then there are such things as channel locks vice grips adjustable wrenches and a good old Phillips head and, and flathead screwdriver interchange. Those things, a little baling wire, a little duct tape, and you can fix just about anything. I'm going to give you a tool like that. I'm going to give you an adjustable wrench for experiencing God. Something that can be gone in for something really small or or reeled way back out for something large. Something that you can use in all different times that you can open your toolbox and that very well used widely used tool it, to experience God it, it's not the end all but I'm going to tell you it, it's a tool pray and seek God with fasting now understand I wrote this in big bold letters in my dissertation you can pray without fasting but you can't fast without praying Jesus told them, listen, the day of atonement, salvation was here. Why did Jesus do what he did? Because he knew better than they did. Have you ever wondered what to do? I, have you ever been to a point where you say, I don't, I, I, I'm just, I'm at a loss. I don't, I don't know where to turn. I don't even, I'm afraid to take even a half, a, to even pull my foot up to take a step because I feel like I'm going to step off into eternity. I'm going to fall off a cliff. I have no idea what I'm doing with my life. I don't know where God wants me to do. Listen, that's the moment where you just stand still and see the salvation of God. Rest in the presence of the Lord. Be still and know that he is God. And in that, through fasting, we see God deliver us. That's what Jesus is telling him. You don't have to fast for deliverance right now because deliverance is standing right here looking you in the eyes. That's why Jesus did what he did, but then they beat him up for it. When you do think, listen, if you've ever fasted, one of the hardest things to do 
is to fast and go to work, go to school, do those things, because we all like to eat. Not only are we Americans where we can just go through the drive-thru and get whatever we want at the split second. I mean, now we're ordering on our cell phones. So it's all there when we get there. Because we want to speed it up to the nth degree. And we're Southerners, so we like to eat a lot. We love, and it's, it's readily available. So when you fast, people are like, why aren't you eating? And they give you the, ninth, uh, the, uh, the tenth degree about why are you not eating? Well, you don't like what I'm doing. Why you don't like to be with me? When you say, I'm not going to lunch today. Well, why not? And it's so hard because we know the scriptures charge not to draw attention to ourselves. But listen, it should not remove why we should do it. Why? Why did Jesus do what he did? Knowing as God he'd be attacked for it. Why did he not do what he didn't do? Because it was not the right time. He knows. Why do we do what we do? Why? Why do we do that? Why would we fast? Why do we read our Bible? Why do we spend so much time coming to church? Why on earth would anybody get out of a good warm bed and leave the comfort of their kitchenette with a good cup of coffee or whatever else you've settled for if you didn't get a good cup of coffee and leave that to come out to church in the middle of a monsoon this morning. When I pulled up, it was absolutely flooding. And I looked and Eric Sapp was completely drenched from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Now, number one, I was like, he started to come. I said, I ain't even going to get out to try to get under an umbrella right now. You just stay where you're at. We'll just wait a little bit. But I want to thank all of our greeters and our ushers for serving when the sun's shining, when it's hot, and when it's miserable like this morning. That's, that's what we're preaching about. That is evidence of who Jesus is in your life. Going and helping senior adults, going and opening doors, doing those kinds of things when it's not comfortable. Sometimes, listen, why do we do what we do? Because serving means suffering. I don't know about you, I don't like being with. I'll be 54 in another week and a half and I still don't want to take time to take a shower. I love swimming once I'm in, but the thought of having to get wet drives me. I don't know. It's an aversion. I just, now I do. You can smell. I do. I took a shower. But there's ball games to watch. There's something else to do. Why do I need to slow down for all that? That, that seven-year-old is still in me. But listen, serving means suffering, but never take your eyes off the prize because when we do, we experience his presence. Remember why? The, while the bridegroom is there, he's there. There's no need in it. But when he's gone, you fast. I don't know about you, but watching what's went on in America this week, I've heard more than one Christian holler, even so, Lord, come quickly. The things that's going on, 
20-year-old kills a boy that he don't even really know that's going to play football in college. I mean, he's worked his whole life. He's played Little League. He's excelled. He's played hard in high school. He gets a scholarship, and he plays at the uh, huge, large, 100,000-seat uh, uh, arena of a stadium in LSU, and just walking through life, another 20-year-old shoots and kills him. Why bother? Is it worth it? Church, is it worth serving God when you know suffering is coming your way? There's nothing worse than to watch somebody you care about going through something that in our eyes and in this world, they don't deserve. Don't it break your heart? Does it break, break your heart? Church, come on now. Have we become so callous and cold that we're only worried, and this is true, we're only worried if we hurt. I love what Matt said this morning because I've been the same way. I, I've, just, I've tried to really not just say, hey, praying, you know, or praying for it. I, I, I want them to understand my heart yearns and, and pleads that God's will be done and that God's hand of protection and healing and direction would be in their life. And may I say, I have seen God do some mighty things this week. Good to see all these college kids home, isn't it? It is for me because they're two of them's mine. But I'm going to tell you something. Friday we left Cleveland, Georgia on uh, Georgia 400. And really, I think that's named as a race, not an actual interstate. It's a race. It's the Georgia 400. And so we're coming down Georgia 400 out of Dawsonville. And Ethan's in the front. And then I'm behind Ethan. Two cars behind me is Emily and her friend. And then uh, two cars behind him is Becky. I know. And it went from two lanes to one. Don't judge me, it's coming your turn one day. So it goes from two lanes to one. And some jack leg, North Georgia, Handicap sticker hanging in the mirror. Decides he's going to just dart over and everybody's brakes needs to work. So he dodged in front of Ethan, run Ethan off into the median. He swerves back. Ethan gets back his lane, goes ahead of Ethan in the car in front of Ethan and dives off in that thing again. And when he did, that car locked it up. Ethan locked it up. And all I seen was the back of Ruby, that Ford 500 coming at me at mock speed. And I literally, in about three milliseconds, said, I'm fixing to wreck the front of Becky's car and the back of the other one. I'm, I'm fixing to wreck two of our vehicles. And then it hit me. I got two more behind me. And I'm telling you, I, I knew. I said, I'm hitting him. And that thing come to a stop. How it didn't hit. And about the time it got good, and it was just, it was happening all in about Two seconds. I looked up my rearview mirror, and there's a gray Jeep standing up like this, and how it didn't hit me, and then how they didn't hit it, and then the one behind them, and the one Becky behind it. I'm not exaggerating. If you don't believe me, ask my children. Six vehicles locked up 
I promise you, you would not have got a total of six inches between those six vehicles. I could not see the top of the trunk of Ethan's car. I could not see anything but the driver's face in the vehicle behind me. It was so close. And you know what? I literally stopped and I said, God, this is why I pray, isn't it? When your kids start driving, you start praying, don't you? I mean, you pray. You stand there in the yard, you watch the taillights go off, and you're praying. And I saw God do a great work there. I really believe that. Now, if you think that's because it sounds silly and I'm just silly to listen to, but listen, we did everything in our power to wreck. God protected us. One of Emily's best friends at school, we got home to Powder Springs, and we're, we're just now breathing two hours later. She gets a text that right close to there, her friend just a little time later, when the rain came in, hydroplane hit the concrete wall and totaled her car, but she's all right. By the grace of God, God protected her. Is it worth it? Is it really worth it? Because listen, we're going to suffer. John chapter 16, verse 33 says it this way. Jesus said, these things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In this world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Yeah, you better believe it's worth it. Because listen, the world with its legalistic attacks and its liberal assertions, the, the legalistic crowd has no grace and the liberal crowd has no truth and no, no law to them of wanting to obey and follow the Lord. But I'm telling you, when the pendulum swings left into liberalism and right into legalism, but when it stops dead center, it stands over God's word. And the fullness of who he is. Let us never get sidetracked to the others. Because listen, 1 Corinthians 15, the same chapter Matt read from, I believe this morning, the resurrection chapter, tells us this in verse 19. He said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. Are we really just going through life to get people to like us? If you have ever really prayed and God has really led you, then you have spoke words that somebody didn't want to hear. Your children didn't want to hear it. You don't have to teach a kid to say no, do you? Huh? No. Because you want them to eat something, you want them to do something. No! If you don't believe it, come to we ones. We'll let you look through the glass. No! slam things, hit things, bite things, throw things, mark things up. We're all in the flesh. But listen, the world, the world is just a short-term thing. It's, it's, it's temporal, it's not eternal. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. You are going to have tribulation. Luke chapter 10, 19 verse 10, let me ask you something. Are the lost worth it? Are the lost worth being the servant of God, serving so that we may present the love of Jesus Christ? Are lost people worth it? So you're telling me it's worth giving to backpacks. They're worth it. Those sweet children and their parents. 
What about the daddy that never has done his duty and he's run off? He's not raised his child. He's drunk it up. Now he's entered into the system and through recidivism he keeps coming in and going out and he's in prison. Is he worth it? How about a homosexual? I'm not talking about a sweet, kind, moral homosexual. I'm talking about a flaming, in-your-face, Christians are just a bunch of judgmental fools that uses the Bible as a crutch. Is that homosexual worth it? What about a heroin addict? Let's never forget, and I always use them as an example. Jesus was criticized here for eating with tax collectors, sinners, public. I, I, I'm thinking this is as, as bad a crowd as there was. My friends, God's called us to be salt and light in a dark, tasteless world. And sometimes it's not going to be fun. But I can promise you one thing. You'll never make an impact in this world at all if you look and act just like them. If we start watering down the gospel and say, well, it's okay because I'm ministering to them. God didn't call us to go and be like them. God says to go love them and show them so that he may draw them out. Are the lost worth it? Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. You better believe it's worth it. But then not only is a servant's motives being questioned. Listen, we don't go alone to get alone. That, that, this world preaches, oh, compromise, compromise, be tolerant. But you, have you ever noticed the ones who preach tolerance the most are the most intolerant? You bunch of Christians are intolerant. You need to tolerate this and you need to tolerate a woman's right to choose. And make no mistake about it. If you watch on Facebook, you're sitting here today. I'm telling you, what's going on in Washington comes down to the biggest fight of the 20th and 21st century. And it is the fight for the right of the unborn child. It is the right of truth and morality. Is Kavanaugh the savior of the world? No. But he is a conservative voice that will not throw God's law and God's word on the trash heap of society. I told this church three years ago that the vote for, president, for the president will, will bear, it is not going to matter as much about the president as the Supreme Court justices that he's going to appoint or she will appoint. And has it not come down to that? And they're not going to go down without a fight. It's not over. It's not even close to over. And if you think if he gets confirmed and goes to that bench, it'll all be over and yay, we won. No, sir. Did it change when Trump was elected? Did it change when George W. Bush was elected? Did it change when Gorsuch was elected, uh, was nominated. Listen, it's not going to change. Satan is still coming after us. And here's the point. 
When we serve God, it doesn't mean that serving, you have to be soft. It doesn't mean you have to be soft. Look in chapter 2, verses, starting in verse 23. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Hey, behold, why? Why do they on the Sabbath day do that which is not lawful? Number one, it wasn't unlawful for them to do what they were doing. That was a pharisaical law that was written in. Do you know we have, how many commandments do we have in the Old Testament? How many? Ten, right? Ten. Four on the first tablet. That is our our horizontal ethic, how we deal with God. There's six on the second tablet, how we uh, deal with our fellow man. How many does Jesus make them into in the New Testament? And where are they written at Eastside every Sunday morning? Right there on that screen, every morning. That's not some cute little saying that someone at Eastside come up with. Jesus said that. To love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That is the first commandment. And the second commandment is that you love your neighbor as you love yourself. He took, listen, he didn't do away with the law. He put teeth in it. He said, hey, it's not murder just if you stab and choke somebody to death. If you hate them in your heart, you've committed murder. It's not just adultery if you sleep around with them. If you lust after them, it's adultery. Jesus put teeth in the law. But he, he summarized it all and he said, listen, that first tablet, he's a jealous God. It's his day. Keep it holy. Don't blaspheme his name. If you love him with all of your being, then you won't do all that. And you won't commit adultery. You won't kill. You won't steal. You won't covet if you love your fellow man as you love yourself. Those two. But do you know how many the Jews through the Pharisees had? Do you have any idea how many they had? 613. 613. How'd you like to know you had to get up this morning and keep 613 laws to stay in, stay in relationship with God? I'd have done all right until I woke up good. Then it had all been downhill. Listen, first of all, we've got to know Scripture. Because the world's going to say, oh, you bunch of judgmental Christians. What does the Bible say? Judge not that you be not judged. Does the Bible say that? Does the Bible say what I just said? Yes, it says that. Is that correctly interpreting the fullness of Scripture in relationship to judging? No. And... Listen, it's a shame. Lost people know more about the Bible than we do. But the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 2.15, study, not read, study, study to show yourself what? Approved unto. I can remember going through, and any of you have traveled abroad, when you come back from a foreign country, there is nothing greater than when they open that passport. 
and they hesitate for a minute to see if you'll act funny or act weird or nervous. When they stamp the seal of the United States immigration on your passport and let you, well, you're like, hallelujah. It don't matter if you're in New York or Miami, you're home. You're home. You have just been allowed back in. I'm going to tell you, when we study, we ought to study that God's stamps approved on our life, that we know scripture and know it right, rightly dividing the word of truth. If you're a parent, if you're a parent and your child says, I want ice cream for supper and a piece of cake for dessert, you know, us softies, we may let that actually happen one time. But what if tomorrow they say, I, now I want cake for supper and I want three scoops of ice cream for dessert. And I want a Milky Way before I go to bed. How many of us going to let that go on? Aren't you judging the situation? Have you ever looked at your child when they wanted to go off with this friend or that friend? You say, no. No, that. Love them, don't trust them. There's a common, listen, there's a common misconception. Because you don't like what they do does not mean you hate them. You want to reach them. But parents, isn't it our job to judge? Does the scripture not teach us to judge a tree by the fruit that it bears? So that whole idea. My point is, listen, know the scripture. Follow the Savior. It, it, it goes back to, in chapter 3, he entered again into the synagogue and there was a man that had a withered hand and they watched him. They were just setting a trap. Oh, what? let's see what he does. Let's trip him up. Let's try to catch him in his words. Jesus didn't care. And he said unto the man that had the withered hand, stand up. And he saith unto him, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they held their peace. They knew. They knew. And so what happened? Jesus healed him. Healed him on the Sabbath day. Oh, they're tore up. I'm going to tell you something. He tells them very clearly. And listen to me. This man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for the man. We get the cart before the horse. We get legalism and liberalism set, a, set ahead of man. But listen, Jesus didn't die for dogma. Jesus didn't die for your opinions. Jesus didn't die for your grandparents' traditions. Jesus died for our sin. Know the scripture, follow the Savior. Loving at all times. But in closing, serve the Lord. Look in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. The famous apologetic. 1 Peter 3. He said in verse 15, Sanctify, set aside, set apart the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Why do you get up and go to church every Sunday? Do you not know it was raining, casting dogs? Why, why, 
Well, they don't miss you one way. Why do you get up and go to Sunday school? Isn't church good enough? Why do you go on Wednesday nights? Why do you go up there and pray? You pray at home. A lot of church members believe that too. We're too tired. We're too this. And, you know, we want to try to schedule God around the world. We got this thing backwards, church. Michelle quoted the other day. We worried about this. We worried about that. Look at Ezra. How long did Ezra preach? Anybody remember? You remember, you don't say it out loud. Preached all day. But he would preach for a quarter of the day, and then they would pray for a quarter of the day. I didn't say a quarter of an hour. He would literally stand before a wooden pulpit and preach for three hours, then they'd pray for three hours. I'm not saying I'm about to do that. I don't think I'm physically cut out for it. But can any of us really get on our face before God and stay there for three hours and just pray? Serve the Lord. Serve Him with gladness. He said be able to give every man an answer. Give him, why the reasoning? Why do you believe in God? Why do you believe the Bible? Why do you believe in eternity? Why do you believe there's a real hell? Why do you believe there's a real heaven? Can you tell people that? He said, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. I don't know. I don't know all the ins and outs. I don't know who did what and all that going on in the Senate, but I know one thing. What is done in secret, God brings to light. And I'm not pointing that at any side of that. I'm not. But I know in my life and in your life, there's been times when we've been falsely accused. But guess what? This whole scripture that I've read last week and this week is about Jesus being falsely accused. It's being about himself, about abusing the Sabbath, about not going along to get along, about not, uh, not being politically correct, and doing things that upset their apple cart. Listen, the guy, and it's not the scripture we preach, but the guy that was running around crazy, naked, driving everybody crazy, they locked their doors and bought a gun because he was so crazy. He had so many demons in him, cutting himself, running around the graveyard. Jesus healed him so that he was clothed in his right mind. Did all the town throw a homecoming parade for it? No, they were mad because he killed their hogs, of which they shouldn't have had to start with because it was against the dietary laws. The world does not like it when we serve God. Listen, verse 17, for it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. When somebody treats you wrong, when you're right, then walk away and say, thank you, Lord, I had an opportunity to do it right. If you're going to suffer, suffer for righteousness sake. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins that the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the spirit. Is it worth it? Serving the Lord? Facing the critics? Is it worth it church? Yeah, it's worth it. As they come to the instruments, 
If Jesus is worth it to you, will you give your life to him? This is not me begging. This is a a song of invitation of God speaking to your life. The word of God quickened by the Holy Spirit that you come and give your life to Christ. If you're lost, do not let the sun go down on your lostness. Die and go to hell. You don't get to pick the time. He said, you come when I draw you. And you don't know when that drawing would end. Come and bend your knee and bow your head and say, Father, I'm a sinner lost without God. Lost without the blood of Jesus. I pray you'd come into my life. Forgive me of my sins and cleanse me for only you are capable. If you're saved and for whatever reason you've not followed in believer's baptism, today's your day to come and tell the world outwardly what he's done inwardly. You come as a candidate for baptism. If today's the day you've been coming and Eastside is the place God wants you to serve. You've heard the great things about the night to shine coming, but we've got things like our children's Christmas musical. We have things with our student ministry, with our men's, women's ministry. There's a place God's got a call in your life. You know this is the place to be. Why not come and surrender to his invitation? When he called Matthew, when he called Andrew, when he called James and John, he said, follow me. And what did Mark say? Immediately, they followed him. So I'm asking, if God's calling you to follow him, why don't you immediately come to him? As we stand, come to Jesus.